Hello, hello, Brattlebro. It is another edition here on the Montpelier Happy Hour, 107.7 FM, Brattlebro LP, I should say. And just before we get started, before we forget, um, because we are a commentary show, the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and not the radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and welcome to the show, regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser. How are you, Emily? I'm well. How are you, Olga? I'm not getting... Is that better? Am I... I think that's better. Can you hear my voice I can hear in you. your headphones? Okay, then I'm <laughs> fine. I can, you know, hear without the headphones. Is that better? It's Live radio, good. everybody. Which it's just good. We're just doing it as it comes. We are. <laughs> So as everyone knows, we have been talking about money issues here on the happy hour for the past, what, three or four weeks? Four weeks, I think. Four weeks. And um, now it's time for our lessons learned, rest and reflect episode to kind of pool all those things together and, and see what we learned from them. Emily, I would love it if you would kind of frame the conversations we've been having and, and what we're planning on doing with them. Absolutely. So at some point in the summer, we decided that before the legislature goes back into session and we focus in on just sort of the day-to-day blow-by-blow of life in Montpelier, we wanted to take a step back and understand how does legislation get to be the way it is and how are the conversations that we're having shaped by other forces. And so we decided that we were going to spend six months... We were going to spend six months and just understand the framing for everything. So we spent the first month talking about what people's interaction with government looks like. And so that was talking about how communities are formed, how communities contribute, how public meetings work, how public meeting laws work. That was an incredible month. And we came to some clear conclusions that... Olga is doing all of these fidgety things. The buttons are making me very nervous. <laughs> no, you still fi- you sound fine. Okay. You're wonderful. We came to some really clear con- conclusions about how we need sort of some new technologies for how to get people to the table to make some decisions because what we've been doing with Robert's Rules of Order is just not good enough because we are having conversations when things when the conversation's already framed, there's not a chance to unpack the conversation before we make decisions. Right. I think I think uh, our guest, Meg Mott, put it really well that that um, Robert Rules is really a decision-making process. Mm-hmm. But for democracy to work, we also need that that conversation and that deliberative process. Deliberative which Robert discovery. Rules do. Yes. Yes. Perfect. And then we talked about how we legislate morality often and that's something that America has a long studied history of (laughs) and so we talked about free speech and sex work and drugs and public space and public space that was incredible because I talking about public space is very important to me lately because I think here in Brattleboro particularly we are really reaching the edge around um, bathrooms and how those are used I noticed that not to call out Mocha Joe's specifically, but I'm going to. Mm-hmm. They now have a lock on their bathroom with a key code for it. 
Oh, interesting. And I've always thought of Mocha Joe's as like the one of the most public bathroom options in town. And so it's interesting. For me, that was sort of like a final domino toppling. Hmm. So anyway, public space, legislating morality, bathroom laws, all of that. And then that brings us to this last month, right? Have I forgotten a month somewhere? I don't think I have. I don't think so. Okay. Uh, Secretary of State Condos did pop in and talk about election fraud while you were away at a conference. Oh, yes. Which was fascinating. I bet that was. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of listeners didn't hear it because we had a technical difficulty. So if you want to hear what Jim Condos has to say about election fraud, hop on over to our SoundCloud page. And you might not know that Vermont is sort of at the cutting edge with most of our election and voting laws. And Jim Condos has been at the forefront of really pushing Um, for transparency in our election process nationally. I I think it was really telling, you know, when I asked him about election fraud in Vermont, he said, no, 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 no. The true election fraud is stopping people who genuinely have the right to vote from voting. That's the true fraud. And that is something that really doesn't happen in Vermont very, very rarely because we have same-day voting, We have um, absentee ballots that are readily available for anyone who wants one. You can vote very far in advance of your election. You don't need to show ID. It's really just the loveliest thing. Yeah, you don't actually even have to really declare a party, do you? No. No, you don't have to declare a party. You don't have to really declare an address, even. You just have to have a town of residence. Mm -hmm. So that's all very exciting. And that brings us to our conversation about money. Money, money, money. Mm -hmm. And before we talk about what we've learned about money, I am feeling a little fuzzy for our conversation today because yesterday was Thanksgiving. I know. It's it's my favorite holiday. It's really up there for me. I think it's the loveliest. Mm-hmm. What do you usually do for Thanksgiving? Olga? Or what did you just do for Thanksgiving? Well, it's it's so fascinating because our Thanksgiving has really changed as a family over the past couple of years. Traditionally, we would all, all of us pile into my grandmother's house, and usually it was anywhere between 20 and 30 people. My grandmother's not happy unless she's feeding at least 25 people. I can relate to that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But as family members have moved out of the area and folks have aged and we've had a few deaths in the family, uh, it's really changed Thanksgiving. And la- uh, yesterday, my, my mother has moved into an assisted living place. And uh, my stepdad, my grandmother, my mom and her husband, we went to uh, the facility and, and had community Thanksgiving, basically, which was lovely Good. because neither my mom, my grandmother or I were running around making things or getting things or whatever. And so we could kind of focus on each other. Uh, and yet it it did bring home to me how much our family Thanksgivings have changed. Um, and I, I being the, the cockeyed optimist in my family, I went around the table. And I'm like, OK, everybody, what are you grateful for this year? <laughs> and they looked at me like I had to. <laughs> I have given up on doing that one in my house. <laughs> I think I, I should, but I probably won't. How about you? What do you do for your Thanksgiving? So I firmly believe that all holidays are better with a mix of friends and family. But Mm -hmm. I really like to do a little bit of a heavy weighting on the friends. Maybe two thirds to one third friends to family. And 
tend to have the same friends at most holidays, but certainly have a regular Thanksgiving crew, a regular Rosh Hashanah crew, a regular Passover crew. New people come in and out. but mm-hmm. um, And so I think that adds, so you get the coziness of family and the tradition of family, but all of the family dynamics get brilliantly dissipated <laughs> by all the friends in the room. And I'm so, glad you said that because I was going to make a cheeky comment, mm-hmm. but I thought no, it would it's be really, <laughs> It's pretty magical. And so that's what we always do. We only had 15 people this year, which was actually very difficult for me. I was very stressed out that we didn't have, you know, a little more than 20. Really like the 20 to 25 range, like your grandma, because mm-hmm. then it's just total abundance. Yeah. Um, and after many years of being chastised and shamed for the various around the table rituals that I would try to concoct or even just some um, heavy cheersing. I have moved to poetry. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. So after dinner and before dessert, I read two poems. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> one of them is the Allen Ginsberg William Burroughs poem about Thanksgiving, oh, nice. which is very dark. Yes, yes, and but really a good choice. I thank you. Some people at the table did not think so. <laughs> <laughs> and I, maybe I, we can, you know, maybe we should read that on the air in a little bit. I can look it up during yes, the break. Mm-hmm. I like that. And then we also, I read a um, W. S. Merwin poem, which is also quite dark but ends um, has this incredible grace to it about sort of the power of saying thank you regardless of circumstance. And so those were really important ways of sort of bringing some more meaning into, I imbue the food with lots of meaning in sort of a like water for chocolate or Babette's feast kind of way. And, you know, think about all of my love and gratitude for the year while I'm cooking. Mm -hmm. I don't let people bring things. And sort of the poems really bring that piece out. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you wrote the, read those poems because while Thanksgiving is one of my, my favorite holidays because I think being grateful and pausing to be grateful and pausing for the abundance in our life is really important. Um, and I feel it's even more important with all the things in the world that are not abundant exactly. and, and not um, things we may be thankful for because we need to hold that space for for new possibility and yet it's also a very complicated holiday for me because it has that yes and quality of yes it is about abundance and most cultures have some kind of harvest abundance uh, celebration Mm -hmm. annual celebration Um, and yet it's also about genocide and it's about our very complicated messy bloody American history Mm -hmm. Um, but I feel it's important to hold space for that as well Mm -hmm. I agree I um and I know that well I've already talked about the magic of the family friends mixer Mm -hmm. and then I've been um in some ways blessed, and in some ways I have some regrets. I have a very politically homogenous family. How did you manage that? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It might be the Jewish thing. Um, Just newsflash, everybody, I do not. <laughs> <laughs> and so that sort of, you know, stress about being gay and going home for the holidays or, you know, being a progressive and going home for the holidays or whatever it is, I've never had any of that. And so... You know, I certainly don't, we don't agree on everything, mm-hmm. um, but polite table conversation always feels very aligned. And so, well, that means I have never quite had the 
incredible diversity to learn from and intimate relationships. It also means that holidays don't have that political stress to them. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, some of my fun memories are my Uncle David and Uncle Stephen. Um, Uncle Stephen saying something, what I think is pretty innocuous, and <coughs> Uncle David turning around being like, well, you're just one of those liberal Democrats. <laughs> and it just goes downhill from there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is so much fun. Mm-hmm. It was even more fun. So what I had family members who used to work for uh, Yankee Row when it was still operating, and then they also worked on the decommissioning. Mm. So those were fun conversations that would spark off during Thanksgiving as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I do, I mean, you know, on the show, one of our themes is the power of debate yeah. and the power of difficult conversations. And I think difficult conversations over food are some of the best difficult conversations to have. It's good to be uncomfortable sometimes mm-hmm. and, and to remind ourselves that, um, you know, while my uncles would be kind of spitting at each other, they're still brothers, mm-hmm. you know, and we're still family and we still find some way to love and appreciate each other, mm-hmm. even if it's not always functional. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, consenting to difficult conversations is important too. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's hard to do with family. It is. Yeah. The other thing that I um, find endlessly amusing is one year on Thanksgiving, someone decided that we should go around and talk about all of the different farms that all the food came from. And it quickly became the most ridiculous of all Portlandia episodes. And we <laughs> ended it. <laughs> and we never did it again. But I do love, you know, I am spend a little too much time at the farmer's market. And I do love sort of looking around and feeling like I'm eating my community on Thanksgiving particularly. That's really so that's wonderful. Nice. Yeah. Well, thank you, Emily, mm-hmm. for for grounding us in in that sense of abundance, because I think that's one thing we have also talked about over these past few months is the, how often our democracy works from a scarcity mindset. Yes. And I that is nowhere is that more important or not important. Um, apparent. Yes. As with money. Mm hmm. And when we were talking with some of our guests, what were some of your takeaways? So I think the biggest takeaway that's coming up for me when I sort of glance across the four guests. So we talked to Doug Hoffer, who's the state auditor, um, about economic development mostly, but a lot about sort of accountability. Mm-hmm. Stephanie Yu from Public Assets about taxes. Laura Sibelia about education finance, Representative Sibelia. And um, Drew Resley, who's the Director of Performance Improvement at the Agency of Human Services. We talked to her about grants. And the thing that comes across most clearly with those four people is, again, this accountability issue mm-hmm. and how the way we spend money in state government and the way that we gather money through taxes in state government is so diffused through many, many, many different pathways or um, silos or whatever sort of jargon you want to use to describe it. It's really hard for people on the ground to understand what their taxes go to, Mm -hmm. why they have the taxes that they have, and then what incredible services they get from their state government because of it. Mm Mm-hmm. And how to make change if they do want to make change, where the sort of trigger points or levers or whatever it is, if people want to make a difference on that. And so that was the biggest theme for me about how complicated this stuff is. Mm -hmm. And um, 
some ideas for what we can do to make it more transparent for people? My takeaway is similar. I've been in my mind summing up these conversations as two plus two equals four, except when it equals six. (laughs) (laughs) And, And to me, that summarizes how we like to talk about money as if it is this very straightforward and taxes and economic development as this very straightforward numbers in numbers out um a valueless proposition exactly exactly and it's not because as a society we pile all our beliefs about how society should work what money should do in our society, who it should support, who it shouldn't support, mm-hmm. what's valuable, what's not. All of those are actually kind of mental and emotional um, constructs. Mm-hmm. And and so that's kind of the six mm-hmm. that we forget how these mechanics are more than just straightforward nuts and bolts mechanics. I mean, in some ways, it's similar to how when we were talking about legislating morality, we were mm-hmm. so focused on what people felt like was right and good or um, getting rid of a behavior that people thought was wrong, that we sort of lost track of what effective would look like to do any of those things. Yes. And I think we do that a lot in how we spend money in the state budget and how and who we choose to tax. Mm-hmm. That's, yes, perfectly. And I, I'm not sure that we have good conversations about, like, say, when a town is building a budget, mm-hmm. just as an example. I'm not sure we always have great conversations about what we want our society to look like. And then how does the money work that? No. So even in um, state government, I think this is so striking that we have absolutely no idea what the full budget would look like for all of our needs. Mm -hmm. We don't ever do that. We don't ever build that needs based budget. We build a budget based on what money is available and then work backwards from there. Exactly. But that means that we're never able to sort of view the dream and figure out what it would take to get there. Mm-hmm. And do you do you feel being in the um, state house that the state house is even set up to have those conversations? I mean, I don't think the state house is set up to have many comprehensive conversations at all um, because of the committee structure, which I absolutely think is an incredible thing um, for going deep on some issues, but especially because our money committees are committees. Mm -hmm. And so we have committees that do policy work, and then we have the committees that do the money work. And so the policy committees can talk through things all they want and recommend something. But then in the end, those value decisions, those value-based decisions about what policy gets funded in the budget, those just sit with those seven people. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm thinking even... Who have not had the deep policy conversation about what's effective. Very good point. I think something similar happened in Brattleboro. I think in some ways town meeting has got gotten a little bit better. At... It's certainly more exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, it is for all what thirteen hours of it. Um, it's gotten better at talking about vision, um, and I think part of the conversation around the energy coordinator um, mm-hmm. and the what was a hundred thousand dollars that was put towards that um, it was actually not put towards the energy coordinator. That hundred thousand dollars was put towards energy funding. Energy funding. Thank and you. And then the conversation got a little 
tweaked later on in remembrance. That that's right. The coordinator. That's right. And sorry, I recently had a, a conversation with um, Peter Elwell about what they're doing with that money and that oh. position, which is why I'm like not saying it very well. And um, I'm sorry that I corrected you about something that happened. No, no, you eight were months right. Ago, you I were was totally just so frustrated right about that. how people lost track of history <laughs> while it was happening. No, I'm so glad you did, though, because I think the, the exchange that Emily and I had just had really sums up some of what we're talking about because in some ways I think town meeting is getting a little bit better talking about vision and then how do we fund that Mm -hmm. like what do we want our society to look like and yet those emotions come in well those re-rememberings come in and things kind of get a little murky and we're having that conversation after the budget's been decided yes and so we're just tweaking an existing vision right and Mm -hmm. so yeah I mean you can add when you're cooking Thanksgiving, for instance, <laughs> I could add salt sprinkled on top of my stuffing. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it will be the best flavored stuffing if I salt the cornbread when I'm baking it. And then I salt the celery and mushrooms and leeks when I'm sauteing them. And then I mix it all together and salt it before I bake it again. Mm-hmm. So... To have a well-seasoned budget. <laughs> Keep pulling those threads. You're doing good. That's so much fun. <laughs> In order to have a well-seasoned budget, you need to be able to have those conversations at multiple steps along the way mm-hmm. while we're really shaping the vision. Yeah. Which I can hear some people say, well, that's what the town plan is for. Which, yeah, that is supposed to be the kind of vision statement for the town. Um but I'm not sure we have the participation or I'm not sure how often the town plan is actually pulled off the shelf. And I put this out here because I don't know how often is the town plan pulled off the shelf. I don't know. Let's find and out. looked at and been like, okay. Daniel, so- are you listening? Daniel. Daniel. Text me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, maybe people don't know, but Daniel Quip, who's on our select board and doing a fabulous job, if I do say so myself, is also the chair of the board here at the radio station. And whenever anything's going wrong with the soundboard, we text him during the show and mm-hmm. he magically appears. I'm yes. not sure how he's able to be that on call, but I appreciate it. Uh, so um, <laughs> Time space continuum. Yeah. <laughs> disappears in the radio station. So one of the things, um, a parallel to state government and state spending with that, is that there isn't really a plan. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you that. So... The each governor comes up with its own strategic plan for each department. Mm-hmm. Each, sorry, each agency. Um, but I don't even think that governors come up with a strategic plan for their entire administration. And certainly, Governor Scott's strategic plan for any of his agencies is not the same strategic plan that our democratically controlled legislature would have. And the legislature certainly doesn't come up with a five-year strategic plan, though that would be so That would be really awesome. (gasps) Put that down in your notebook. Do you know that I filled up my notebook, Olga? Look at that. Oh, my gosh. You're going to have to find a little corner to write on. I'm very proud of you, though. Thank you. Um, But, but yeah, or, or even right now, I think... Some people might argue, oh, well, the governor talks about affordability and demographic changes a lot. Well, that's nice. But affordability, just as a word, is is a little too big for a vision because 
what he thinks makes the state affordable may not be what you and I think the state needs to be affordable. That is one of the most frustrating things to me. (laughs) So um, for me, I think when we get into the governor's version of affordability, which is lowering taxes and costs of things and not raising wages, Mm -hmm. we wind up in this crazy Vermont trap that I think we've been in for a very long time, which is essentially the entire economy is rolling around on the edges of Vermont. The economy is growing Mm -hmm. hypothetically, right? And the future is essentially coming to the rest of the country and the rest of the world. And Vermont's still sitting here. And we're essentially like a developing country yes. within another country. We, we should probably look up Golden Stern's uh, Vermont's a third world country song. Do you not know, know that song? Oh, oh, that's fun. But it, I, think they, I think they wrote it and performed it in the 80s or the 90s but it still feels very relevant unfortunately but basically Vermont's a third world country and nobody knows and Frank Bryan um, who is a incredible historian at UVM Mm -hmm. who writes a lot about Vermont history and Vermont political history um, has an entire book about how sort of Vermont basically because our economy moved so slowly we sort of cycled the rest of the country cycled around us and then met us while we were staying in the same place. Hmm. But I don't think that's happening anymore. So if wages don't go up right, and costs go down or stay the same, yes, things would be slightly more comfortable here, but no one would ever be able to leave the state. And while I think some people might like that, given our population dynamics that some people are concerned about, I don't think that's fair to people who live here. Mm-hmm. I think a certain amount of mobility is nice yeah, for career growth, for emotional growth, for whatever it is. So, Well, it should just address your life as it naturally changes even. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we are just about at the break mark. Oh, I will look up my poems. You, while we you will look up your move. poem. I am going to turn us over to some of our underwriters. And then Emily and I... We'll return after the break. And we are back here with the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Hey, Emily, take it away. I'm going to answer the phone. (laughs) What happens next, Olga? What happens next? Save me from myself. Save you from yourself. I shall do. Um, And and thank you to the caller. That was someone actually looking for somebody else who isn't here right now. Um, So, yeah, we were. I thought it was Daniel calling. Yeah. (laughs) Or Daniel. No, he just texts texts me. Um, So, yeah, we wanted to wrap it up. We've been talking kind of big picture about some of the things we've learned and some of our our takeaways with with. over these last few months in our, our conversations on money or money talks, as I've been calling them. And, you know, these big picture pie in the sky things are great. But what does this look like now, Emily, I would like us to talk about for us for our daily work, when you return to the state house, when I return to reporting, what are we going to do with all the things that we have learned? You know, has has this changed anything for us? New perspectives, that kind of thing. Um. So I am very clear about the need to, in my committee specifically, understand 
and own all of the different ways we are contributing to economic development financially. Okay. And be looking at that as a more holistic issue instead of just looking program by program by program and saying, is this good? Is this not good? Is this good? Is this not good? And how is it accountable to the folks who are paying taxes or who are benefiting from it on a more um, distributed way? So I think often we have economic development programs that are accountable to the very specific um, people who benefit from them directly. So um, the businesses who get funding from Mm -hmm. it or the people who immediately get a job created from it might know about that program Um, or the people who work at a regional development corporations. But what does it mean to make our economic development strategies accountable to people who might be feeling the multiplier effect like Doug Hoffer talked about? What does it mean? How can I develop policies in commerce and how can we talk about bills when we're in the commerce committee so that people will be able to feel the multiplier effects of economic development. Mm -hmm. And I will feel like I have the full picture in front of me. So I am going to try to do some work this session to try to get um, that comprehensive economic development budget that Doug Hoffer talked about. I also want to make sure that when we are moving money into grants and contracts, the way we talked about with Drew Wrestley, Mm that again, we are understanding the full multiplier effects of that. So one of the big debates around minimum wage was interestingly the fact that so many of our state contracts go to agencies that don't pay minimum wage. Hmm. And or that pay minimum wage, but don't pay $15 an hour, excuse right. me. Okay. Yes. Don't pay what would be the minimum wage if we increased it. Mm-hmm. And so state contracts would need to be increased. Mm-hmm. So there would need to be more money in the state budget for this issue. Right. Um, and so how are we as legislature, legislators who build the budget responsible to the livelihoods of people who are even, you know, having the secondary effects of our spending. Mm-hmm. And so those are some things that are going to be really ripe and present for me. Mm-hmm. For me, I it brought home for me these conversations with, with all our guests. You know, when I hear from people on the street, frustrations around finances and what the state is or is not spending money on, or even the town, the town they live in is or is not spending money on, um, I I came to realize how much that frustration is not even as much to do with what is actually being spent or not, but the fact that folks don't understand how the money is flowing through the system. And so as a reporter, I feel my editor, Jeff, at the Commons, Jeff Potter, likes to call these eat your vegetable articles. Um, (laughs) But I think we need more eat your vegetable articles when it comes to how money systems work in this state so that people can understand. They may not still may not agree, but at least they won't. I'm hoping they wouldn't feel as helpless Mm -hmm. in the system if they at least understand some of what's happening. I think the vegetables are the best part of Thanksgiving (laughs) for the record. And I often think they're the best part of a newspaper. And I agree with you. Mm -hmm. So um, 
we often, you know, when I was knocking on doors, people would often say, you know, my biggest problem is my taxes. Are you going to go fix those? And I'm like, do you mean fix what you get for them or fix how much you're paying? Because if you got something different for them, would the amount you're paying be okay with you? And everyone said yes. I mean, mm, everyone said yes. Interesting. So, you know, I think about how much money I'm paying out of pocket for healthcare right now. Um, between the premium that I am, you know, responsible for more than half of, even though I have an employer offers health insurance, my mm-hmm. deductible, my co-pays, all those thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah. If half of that was being taken in taxes or even all of it. I was paying in taxes and then getting really comprehensive health care from it totally might different, different conversation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's true for a lot of what a lot of what taxes do to build um, a community and a society where everyone can thrive. I think that's very possible. And mm-hmm. I guess that's why I'm a politician is because I think that's possible. <laughs> I think that the common good is something that we can move forward. Yes. To that point, the the other thing I uh, I feel as a reporter I need to start referencing more is the Joint Fiscal Office's uh, basic needs budget. Mm-hmm. Because one of the biggest disconnects I feel in, in this state is that, you know, the JFO, um, also known as the Joint Fiscal Office, builds every few years this what it considers a basic needs budget. So if someone was not taking um, services because they had enough to cover their savings, their insurance, their clothing, their food, their rent, that type of thing is, is basically what goes into this basic needs budget. They don't have budget. any young children. Uh, no, they, they have different oh, okay. levels for different households, makeups. Um, what people would need to earn. Most people that I know are not earning what the the state itself basically says people should be earning. And and I think that's a huge disconnect. And that is a document, because we can all look at it and read it and hold it, that should probably be referenced more often to say, okay, so how does this fit in? How does this fit into our lives? Yeah. And how many of these things are, how many pieces of the basic needs budget are things that the state should take responsibility for? And expand the social safety net or safety floor, whatever we want to call it. Um, mm-hmm. How many How many of these are public goods that we have privatized and we should make public goods again? And how many of these are things that we need to raise wages to make sure that people can get? And I th- really do believe that it's a combination of the two. Yeah, I would agree with that. We actually have an all-day briefing on Wednesday from the Joint Fiscal Office. Oh, well, that's interesting. Do you want to come? When is it? I think it's this Wednesday. I, yeah. (laughs) Is it in Montpelier? It's in Montpelier. I will check my calendar. Cool. Get back to you on that. If not, I'll take, oh, I'm going to take really good notes either way, but I'll take notes thinking about what I'll tell you (laughs) if you're not there rather than just taking notes for myself. I, yeah, I'm definitely going to check my calendar. Yeah. So that happens every December. Um, I think it's always the first week in December, actually. Mm -hmm. And the whole body comes, House and Senate, and we spend the whole day being briefed on sort of the state of state finances, the state of the state from JFO. Wow. Yeah. So for folks who aren't familiar with the JFO, um, just just Google Vermont Joint Fiscal Office and check out because they have some amazing reports. They have the basic needs budget. Um, 
And and I think they're a great touchstone because they're not Democrat, they're not Republican, they're not progressive. They are fiercely nonpartisan. And so the legislature has really two branches of support staff, and that is the Joint Fiscal Office and the Joint Legislative mm-hmm. Council. And so the Joint Fiscal Office does all of anything involving numbers of any kind on behalf of the legislature and are fiercely nonpartisan about it and amazing. And then Legislative Council that we've talked about before does anything related to laws mm-hmm. that the legislature needs at all. And between the two of them, they get it all done and they keep us very well informed. Well, and they were one of the, the folks that Doug Hoffer said when we were speaking probably needed to be pulled into some of the money conversations a little bit more often. Yeah, I think what and I think what he means by that is that we often don't acknowledge that we're having money conversations when we're having them. Hmm. And so oh, the Joint Fiscal Office spends an enormous amount of time in the finance committees mm-hmm. and in the appropriations committees, ways and means. They do not spend time in committees when committees are talking about policy unless it's a policy that very clearly has numbers attached to it. So the JFO office spends some time when the um, House General Committee was looking at minimum wage. Mm -hmm. They spent some time in that committee. But unless it's something that really just sort of has numbers in its title, they tend not to be brought in. Well, once again... That's another way we're acknowledging that we're not... We're not acknowledging that we're talking about money when we are. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and maybe we need to change the the framework a little bit. We say money, but maybe we need to just talk resources as well. That money is one of the many pieces of the resource pie. Yes. Yeah. And that there are there are resource implications for any policy. I think people this is another sort of very political thing, but I think people avoid having JFO come into their committee because it complicates things. Hmm. And so if there is a fiscal note attached to it, that's going to change the debate than if people can just make it a policy issue. And so Hmm. people will sort of pretend that things don't have resource implications when they do in order for things to be passed. You know, I, I can see... So playing devil's advocate... I would say that's even better reason to bring the JFO in. Absolutely, yes. Because then it would be one less thing people could just use their imaginations on Ugh. and make arguments on imagination rather than, you know, someone can say, oh, no, this is going to cost us too much money. Well, if you don't have like a fiscal certificate, how do you know? Fiscal note. Or sis- fiscal note. I like the you. idea of them being certificates, I though, because maybe they'd have, like, gold leaf. They'd be much more fancy and little something. ribbons yes. on them and framed. Mm-hmm. You know, there are ribbons on the bills. Oh, mm-hmm. I have not seen a bill with ribbons on They're it. They're tied up sometimes. Oh, mm-hmm. that's so sweet. Yeah, rolled, like little <laughs> scrolls. It's uh, like little diplomas. The pomp and circumstance is amazing <laughs> and ridiculous. Well, I like that, because then you can, you can think of what you just said reminds me of diplomas and so see a bill has graduated a, a policy has graduated into a law oh <laughs> that's very sweet. That's sweet that is very sweet yes <laughs> um so okay so let's say we go ahead and say okay we want the jfo pulled into more of these conversations what do you think would have to change in the state house to make that happen so I think one thing that would have to change is um, people are 
And I don't know, have you ever been on a board of a nonprofit? Uh, no, but I'm in a nonprofit that has a board. Okay, so there's this funny thing that happens on boards, and I guess it happens almost everywhere, but it's particularly clear to me on boards. There's always one person on the board who's like comfortable with the budget of the organization, and everyone else like just trusts that person to deal with it. Mm-hmm. It's a really awesome recipe for fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've seen that happen in lots of places. Yes. So... I think there's a little bit of that that goes on in the legislature. Like you have a lot of sort of like social science people, you know, attorneys and teachers and social workers. And then you have people who um, liked math in high school. Mm-hmm. It's really that, you know, or elementary school. People carry bizarre trauma around math. And... <laughs> <laughs> That's because there's a lot of math magicians teaching math. Ooh. Yeah. I, 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 you have your own math trauma, don't you? She's watching me like break out in a sweat right now. <laughs> you really are. Um, you could take the scarf off. No, I'm actually kind of cold. Oh, okay. Um, it's a cold sweat. So there's that. There's mm-hmm. the people who are sort of scared of the money and, um, that is often used as a way of sort of controlling political dialogue because mm. the people who aren't scared have tremendous amount of power. There's spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. And so then you also have sort of people with technical or technological knowledge because they can use spreadsheets, which are also even some people who feel comfortable with math are a little nervous about spreadsheets and how to read them. Mm. We just have a very low math like literacy mm-hmm. in our society. So I think some of that would have to shift. Um, people would really need some training to get much more comfortable with that stuff. Mm -hmm. Because as a citizen legislature, we don't, um, and maybe this is true in all legislatures, we don't really necessarily have to have any particular skills to get the job. Right. And we don't get very much training once we get there. And so we are all making it up as we go along, which is beautiful. It it allows for creativity and out-of-box thinking. Yes, absolutely. But it means that people are a little bit uncomfortable with fiscal notes or Mm -hmm. how to interpret them. And so I think we would need to have a little bit of coaching around that. Mm -hmm. We'd probably need to add some more people to the joint fiscal office. Yeah. Um, Resource implications. Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. Um, And I think we would need to get curious about network effects of things. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that would be a big difference, too. We would need to really understand, okay... Because I don't think it's useful to just talk about like how much will this cost as a line item in the budget. I think we have to understand the network effects of bills too to mm-hmm. really talk about resource implications. And that's something, again, that um, I think both Stephanie you and Doug Hoffer talked about. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, and I think they both talked about, as you, as you have said, looking at the vision first and then how do the numbers fit into that. Mm-hmm. Which, as you said, can be hard to have those comprehensive conversations mm-hmm. in a citizen legislature that's only operating for so many months. And it turns over every two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that Drew Wesley and I talk about a lot um, in the context of grants and contracts and then more broadly is how we get clear on what outcome we're seeking before we develop strategies, mm-hmm. how that would be an ideal way to move. And it's similarly let's get clear on what our goals are, build a needs-based budget, and then figure out how to get there. What might that tax structure look like? What things are complementing each other and magnifying each other? How can we really understand the full picture? Mm -hmm. So once again, it comes back to something you said at the beginning of the show, which was how do we create these structures that aren't just Robert rules, 
mm-hmm. which is the decision making process, and how do we create better deliberative processes? Mm-hmm. And ideally, the caucuses um, have a role to play in that. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a possibility in the future. Yeah. Well, and and the Climate Solutions Caucus is mm-hmm. a good example of that. Yeah. Uh, when they were in town. Um, I'm forgetting her last name, but Sarah Copeland Hanses. Thank you. Um, really laid out really well what work happened mm-hmm. during what we call the off session. Yes. Yep. By we, you mean you? I don't call it the off session. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I call it the off session. <laughs> um, yeah, and so there's. I think when we're doing things well, it is also a lot of extra work because mm-hmm. we're doing these sort of ad hoc working groups where we have the spaciousness to do some planning around cost and resources and understanding the big picture before we move forward. So we're just, this this hour went really fast. It did. Oh my gosh. So any final thoughts before we move on to our deliciousness for, for this show? No, how about you? I don't think so. Okay, let's just talk about cocktails then. Let's, uh, let's do it. Okay, so... When people arrive on Thanksgiving, I do a lot of work beforehand, but there's always some last minute things that I'm still doing in the kitchen when people arrive. So I don't want to be mixing drinks for my guests or pouring things for them. So I like to set up a nice table with a drink selection on it. Mm -hmm. And I also like to make things simple Mm -hmm. or as simple as possible. I don't think my partner would agree with what I just said. <laughs> In fact, it might not be true at all. So anyway, what I did this year. simplicity is another person's yes. not. <laughs> One thing I did this year, um, and I've done a few years before, is I make this incredible cranberry gel. So it's sort of like a nod to the cranberry in a can, but it's not at all. Okay. And so I cook cranberries with sugar and juniper berries mm. and port and black peppercorns. And then I strain it and I chill it. And because cranberries have so much pectin in them, Mm -hmm. it just becomes a natural gel. Right. And then all the leftover cranberry bits and black peppercorns and juniper berries, I usually make this about a week out and I pour some vinegar in. And so I make this incredible cranberry shrub. Mm. So delicious. Mm -hmm. And so I like to put that on the table. And people can either add that to sparkling wine if they want something a little lighter. They can add it to sparkling water. Mm -hmm. If they would like that, even with a splash of soft cider, fresh cider. And then what I like the very most is doing is making a Manhattan out of it. Ooh. So I was on a good year. I remember to take the cranberries out of the freezer and we use the cranberries as ice cubes. But I did not do that this year. But the cranberry shrub, Mm -hmm. the rye, and then a little bit of sweet vermouth is just the best. That sounds incredible. I know. And it's like using leftovers. It is. Well, it's it's using everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What a nice creative way to go from side condiment to a signature cocktail. Indeed. Mm-hmm. And on that note, shall I close with our poems? about? Uh, yes, please. Okay. So the complexity of Thanksgiving coming right up. We're going straight from cocktails. And, and title and author, just so that we're Indeed. kosher. A Thanksgiving Prayer by William Burroughs. Thanksgiving Day, November 28th, 1986. That's the title. Thanks for the wild turkey and the passenger pigeons destined to be shot out through wholesome American guts. Thanks for a continent to despoil and poison. 
Thanks for Indians to provide a modicum of challenge and danger. Thanks for vast herds of bison to kill and skin, leaving the carcasses to rot. Thanks for bounties on wolves and coyotes. Thanks for the American dream to vulgarize and to falsify until the bare lies shine through. Thanks for the KKK, for nigger-loving, killing lawmen, feeling their notches. For decent church-going women with their mean, pinched, bitter, evil faces. Thanks for kill a queer for Christ stickers. Thanks for laboratory aids. Thanks for prohibition and the war against drugs. Thanks for a country where nobody's allowed to mind his own business. Thanks for a nation of finks. Yes, thanks for all the memories, all right. Let's see your arms. You always wore a headache and you always wore a bore. Thanks for the last and greatest betrayal of the last and greatest of human dreams. And now, so we don't all just go riot in the streets, I'm going to read a second poem of thanks by W.S. Merwin. This one's still dark, but has a nice, it closes, it closes a little more gently. Listen, with the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water thanking it, standing by the windows looking out in our directions. Back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging, after funerals, we are saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you, in the doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators. Remembering wars and the police at the door and the beatings on the stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks, we are saying thank you. In the faces of the officials and the rich and all who will never change, we go on saying thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, taking our feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forest falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us, we are saying thank you faster and faster. With nobody listening, we are saying thank you. Thank you, we are saying and waving, dark though it is. Thank you, Emily, for reading those two poems. Thanks for talking again, Olga. And thank you to all our listeners out there, both those who are listening live on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station, as well as everyone who tunes into our pod, excuse me, our podcasts every week. This is the Montpelier Happy Hour, and we are grateful that we will be continuing on into the new legislative session. And coming up, we will be talking about agriculture and and some of the implications around policy with agriculture and land use so stay tuned for those and for everyone who uh, celebrated thanksgiving i hope you have a chance to give thanks and be grateful for the abundance in your life 